You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Again, Father, we pray that you would teach us about yourself through your word and teach us how to handle your word rightly. Uh, Father, we pray this so that you might be glorified and people come to know your son more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I should warn you ahead of time, I like telling stories, so every time when I think you're going to sleep, I might tell a story. Okay, and we're going to start with a story so that you can wake up. Jonah knew the story well. Um, it, was, it was in the second book of the law, God had performed a spectacular rescue of his people. The malevolent anti-God Pharaoh had forced them into cruel slavery. They groaned deeply because of their slavery and they cried out to God for help. And the Lord heard. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And he saw the people of Israel. He knew, he came down, he waged war on Pharaoh and rescued his people in a spectacular show of power. And... As the Bible says, he bore them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. And then he entered into covenant with Israel and he made them what he called his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and he gave them his law. Then the most disastrous and shameful event occurred. At the very time while Moses was up on the mountain of God, under the very eye of the Lord, Israel engaged in idolatry at the bottom of the the mountain. They made a golden calf and they told each other that it was the golden calf that had brought them out of Egypt. It was a terrible sin and God responded in anger. He threatened that, look, I'll just wipe out those people and form a new nation from you, Moses. And Moses interceded. He begged God to relent and remarkably, God did relent. Oh, he did punish the sinfulness of Israel but he did not do away with his nation. He continued to be their God. And he physically passed before Moses. Can you imagine that? And shortly after that incident, he proclaimed his name and his nature to him. And these are the words that he told Abraham, uh, Moses. The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast or faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. That's awesome, that, isn't it? Israel now knew God in a very special way, you see. He was their Lord, and as Lord... He is a God who relents from sending disaster. He may judge, he may indeed do that, he may judge, but his overwhelming disposition is to be the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He may judge, but his inclination is mercy. That's who he is. That's what he's like. And Jonah the prophet knew it. That's why he was packing his bags You see, that very morning the word of the Lord had come to him and that word was clear and unequivocal. 
Jonah was to get up and go and head off to Nineveh, that renowned evil, God-hating, God's people-hating nation, and he was to call out against them. And Jonah would have nothing of it. He remembered the golden calf incident. He knew God's nature to have mercy. And he knew God relented from sending disaster. And he had a strong suspicion if all of that was the case, then his nature would not be restricted with Israel. And he might even let those Ninevites go. He could even extend to Nineveh surprising mercy. And so he, Jonah, would not go Instead, he would head off in the opposite direction. Though he hated the sea, he would go down to Joppa. And he would find a ship going to Tarshish, and he would flee God's presence and God's word. Now, friends, you might think that the story of Jonah is a very strange place to begin our little day or so. But I've chosen it deliberately and very carefully. You see, the story of the golden calf incident in Exodus 32 is a key story in the Bible. So is God's revelation of himself in Exodus 32. And within the Bible, what we do see is a number of people engage in biblical interpretation of that story and that revelation by God. Jonah is one of them. And he tells us in chapter 4 of his book that his interpretation caused him to run away from God's call. You see, chapter 4 tells us that Jonah knew that if God was who he had revealed himself back in Exodus 32 and 34, then he wouldn't stop turning his anger away from, Nineveh, from those people, from people like Jonah and from the Ninevites. His nature would open up the possibility of forgiving even evil cities like Nineveh. So, now I guess you've never thought of Jonah as the Bible scholar, <laughs> but he is. He read his Bible he interpreted his Bible, he understood his Bible, he applied what he read to his own context and then he acted. That's why he's in the boat. <laughs> of course, although he interpreted the Bible properly, his application was the wrong application. He should have obeyed God and preached as he was told. And do you know what? God stopped him in his tracks as he was fleeing and called him again and sent him again to Nineveh and guess what happened? God did exactly what Jonah had anticipated. <laughs> and so what this story of Jonah tells us is that biblical interpretation is a very ancient skill. It goes back to the Bible itself. And having shown you that, I want to introduce you to what we're going to do in this next day. This first session has very modest goals. First, I want to introduce you to the concept of interpretation. Second, I want to introduce you to the nature of the Bible so that you can know how you're interpreting and how to go about it. Third, I want to explain the nature of biblical interpretation. And finally, I just want to say a brief word, if we get time, about Bible translations. So, let me start by thinking about interpretation with you. Interpretation is a fundamental human skill. Uh, you are doing so now as you listen to me. If you drove a car today, you did it. For example, as you drove, you would, seen, you would have seen some road signs, wouldn't you? Perhaps you even saw this sign. I'm hoping it's it. Yeah, there we go. Uh, hopefully, you interpreted that sign <laughs> and interpreted it well. And you took your foot off the accelerator and placed it on the brake. 
In other words, you saw an instruction, you interpreted the instruction, you did something in response, you applied that instruction, or perhaps you saw this next sign at a particular time of the day. In Australia, that sign has become so familiar that nearly all drivers understand it and its implications. It means that there is a school nearby and that a particular strict obedience is required at particular times of the day. Perhaps because of past experience with a speed camera or a police person, we know disobedience can be painful. So you see, we might not only have a cognitive response, but we might also have an emotional response, mightn't we? Oh, I better put my foot on the brake. In any case, we engage in interpretation, don't we? Now, road signs are but one example of just how fundamental interpretation is to our existence. And those of you who are married will know how true that is. Now, whether it's relating to your spouse, your children, your parents, your friends, all of it requires interpretation, doesn't it? We might have to read verbal cues or even non-verbal cues. Watching movies requires interpretation, doesn't it? As does reading SMS messages. You would not have thought that, but it does. Or searching the internet or even public transport. Nearly every activity we humans engage in as human beings involves interpretation. Interpretation is a natural skill required for, of us as humans. However, let me say that good interpretation can sometimes require hard work. Those of us who are married know this, as do those of us who are parents. <laughs> Sometimes words and actions need hard work and even interaction if we're to understand them properly and make the proper responses. You ask Heather about you know, trying to get something across to me. Interpretation is a natural skill required of us as human beings. Good interpretation requires good skills, sometimes requires learning good interpretive skills and it might even develop skills such as listening, questioning, observation, communication. Now the first thing to say is a bit stupid but I need to say it anyway. This is about the Bible. The Bible is a written document. It's not some kaleidoscope of images put together even though words might capture some of, uh, conjure up images in our minds, it's not a piece of music, even though it's often set to music. It's a library of written works. That's what it is. And that means to understand it, you're going to have to understand how to interpret words. You're going to have to read and understand words and what they mean. That's the first thing about that we need to understand about reading our Bibles. It's a written document. And good interpretation involves having good reading skills. Second thing to say is that it's a translated document. It was originally written in three major languages. The most used one, Hebrew. Most of the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. Second most used for writing the Bible is Greek. That's most of the New Testament. Third major language is Aramaic. There are various Aramaic sections to uh, the Old Testament. For example, a large part of the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. Uh, now, for most of us, we're, not, we're, we're going to have to rely on someone else doing the translation work, aren't we? Uh, but, yet, but be aware of it. 
three different languages written in a language not our own. Now, the first two things about the nature of the Bible are fairly mundane, but I want to talk to you about them as well. See, I'm just laying foundations now for the rest of our time. The most important thing to remember is that as Christians, we believe the Bible is God's inspired word. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, the Apostle Paul, speaking about the Old Testament scriptures, says these words. Make sure you hear them, you'll know them. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the person of God may be a complete equipped for every good work. It, the text actually says man, but I think it means an inclusive human beings. Although the Apostle Paul is speaking about the Old Testament in particular, his words equally apply to the rest of Scripture. The Scriptures are said to be, in Scripture, the breathed, the very breath of God. They are inspired, they are from God, they come from his mouth, as it were. In, in that sense, the Bible is the word of God to humanity. It's a book about, in, from the mouth of a divine author, conveying timeless truths. The implications are so profound and we're going to explore them in the next session. But at the moment, we can say that this means that the Bible will have implications for us. Even more, it means that studying the Bible is not just an academic exercise for us. No, it means we've got to come to the Bible um, with reverence, with fear. We will also come to the Bible ready to open our hearts and be willing to obey what we hear. Moreover, since the Bible comes from God himself, we will expect it will have an overall unity to it, won't it? Because from the same person. He uses the mouths of other people as well, but nevertheless, it's him behind them. It'll hold together as a whole because it comes from one. So we interpret, when we interpret the Bible, we should interpret it as the word of God. However, there's another side to this. The other side is that the Bible is also written by humans under the inspiration of God. In other words, you see, this, you've got this strange thing working here. While being under the inspiration of God, the Bible is written by humans in human situations to other humans. If we were to combine that with our previous point, we could say that the Bible is a book with human authors that conveys timeless truths from God couched in human words that's packed isn't it that doesn't mean that the authors of the bible were sort of um, robots or automatums matons who lent their hands and their pens to god you know it's not as though paul sat down one night he's got his quill there he said right god we're ready to go move my fingers no no he, he worked through paul the thinking man and so on when he wrote he did so as a human being of his age he had various preconceptions uh, concerning the nature of humans, of the world, of society and so on. He wrote with a language and idiom that were those that he normally talked to people in the street with. He held preconceptions of, the, of his age concerning the nature of man, the world and society. One of the implications of this is that what the Bible says to us will arise out of what it said to its original readers. Please hear that, it's very important. What the Bible says to us will rise out of what the author said to the original readers. 
Therefore, our understanding of what's being said in the Bible will be enhanced if we can find out all we can about their world, um, their situation, their history, their personality, their, the language of both the author and the original reader. If we know something about that, then we'll know more about what they're trying to communicate. So to be good readers of the Bible, we're going to not only have to be good readers, sometimes we're going to have to dabble in history and geography and maybe even a bit of ancient politics if we're going to understand what someone's saying. So let's see if we can summarise the nature of the Bible and biblical interpretation. First, the primary point, be taking notes as the one to put down, of focus for us is to hear the word of God. God's word to us comes in the form of scripture. Scripture was written under God's guidance and the oversight of God through his spirit. It is his work. However, the agents for writing it were human beings separated from us in time and language. What's more, the people who received the original writing were separated from us in time and language as well. So to interpret scripture, we're going to do a lot of work, don't we? We're going to have to not only understand words, we're going to understand, have to understand them in their original context, from which they were written and to which they were written. That's a big task, isn't it? Perhaps an example would help. I think biblical interpretation can be likened to time travel. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? I think what you're doing often in the Bible is you, you, you start over here in, a, in Australia, in a southern state somewhere, right? And you, you've got to say, well, now I'm going to read this book, but the people who wrote, they're hundreds thousands of years away they're speaking a different language in a different place in a different society to different people no Asians for example right no they're, they're all Mesopotamians largely so Bible translations therefore vary an enormous amount at one end of the spectrum we have translations that work hard at translating literally Others are word-for-word -word translations and that way word-for-word -word translations was the standard up until 50 years ago. There's still some translations that have that general policy. Do you know what they might be? You think about it. The message lies at one extreme. If you've read the message, right, it, it lies at one extreme. I'm not complaining about it, I'm just saying that's where it is, okay? Uh, what are some of the ones that have that general policy of try to represent almost as word for word if you can? New American Standard Bible and the English Standard, the ESV. A newer entry into the area is the one we use at Cross and Crown, the Christian Standard Bible. At the other end of the spectrum are what I would call paraphrases. You know who gets the prize for this one? I think Eugene Peterson's The Message is probably lies at that end of the spectrum. Somewhere in the middle are translations that try to translate more along the path of idea for idea. Okay? 
A good example is the Good News Bible. I think it's a, a noble attempt to do that, somewhere in the middle. Other translations sit between word-for-word word and idea-for-idea translations. Uh, and a good example of that might be uh, the various versions of the NIV. On top of those considerations, translations vary according to how they translate what. What can you not get a do these days? Well, you've got to be very serious about gender-related language. Okay, so many translations opt for a... Ver- a position on that. Now for what we're going to do in the coming day, for all serious study of the Bible in English, my view is the best option is a more literal or word-for-word translation for doing your detailed work on the text of Scripture. If you can get hold of one, get hold of one. Now what, I, what I've just, what I did earlier on is I introduced you to a key passage from the book of Exodus, okay? It was a story about how Israel had sinned in the incident of the golden calf. It was a terrible sin and a terrible event from a people who just entered into covenant with God. So you enter into covenant and then you go and commit idolatry. Nevertheless, God relents from sending disaster. And he reveals his nature and his name to Moses. And you might remember that Jonah used this story and this revelation to Moses to run away from God's call. I want to start this session by telling you some great news. This is not the last you've heard of Jonah. (laughs) I love Jonah because he can be taken advantage of so easily. No, I don't mean that. You know what I mean. (laughs) And you haven't heard the last of him because throughout our time together, we're going to look at the book of Jonah. Um, It's going to be a book that I use to illustrate principles of biblical interpretation. So I'm looking forward to some great things. Uh, That's the first thing I want to say. Second thing that I want to do is, as we begin is remember that we, what we learnt, what I just taught you. You may remember that I said interpretation is a fundamental human skill that we do it all day, every day. Then I explained that there are four things we need to remember about the nature of the Bible. Do you remember them? Each of them have implications. First, the Bible is a written document made up of a library of written documents. That means when we interpret it, we have to use good reading skills and interpreting skills. Second, the Bible is a translated document, originally written in a language we can't understand. Implication is, when we interpret it, we need to not forget. Translations cannot always capture what an original language can. Third, the Bible is the Word of God. That means when we're reading it, God is speaking. We're listening to the living God speak when we read it. And we have to come, therefore, with open hearts, reverence and even fear. We're going to have to be ready to obey. Why? Because it comes from him and it will have an overall unity and it will hold together as a whole. It's a very sensible book to be reading seriously. Fourth point. The Bible is written by humans who lived in a different time and place from us. Therefore, when we read the Bible... We're going to have to be sensitive to the context of the original readers and hearers. We're also going to have to do some careful thinking about how this applies in our context. And finally, so fifth point. In our previous session, or in our previous earlier time, we reflected on different translations. And I recommended that for this course, 
you stick with a version that's on the more literal end of the spectrum. So with that groundwork done, we can now get started and I want to tell you what I want to, what I want to accomplish. I want to introduce you to my little model of biblical interpretation. It's used by Langham preaching in various, in teaching pastors around the world. That's where I developed it. That's a standard model of interpretation because it works across cultures. Uh, it's designed so that it can be easily memorised. So you cannot forget it. So I'm going to start quizzing you randomly. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, my name for it is The Five Looks. I'll tell you where I got the idea from. There is a great evangelist in Sydney, or was a great evangelist, uh, called John Chapman. And he had an outline of the gospel and he could summarise it like this. And I thought this was brilliant. God, man, God, what if I do, what if I don't? He said, there's the gospel. You can do it on the fingers of one hand. So I thought, I've got to do that with Bible. <laughs> so this is what I have, five looks. You can remember them on the fingers of one hand. Look up, look down, look back, look forward, look here. Yeah, you're done. Right? You remember that? You can go home happy. <laughs> um, I have a contract to publish this book and they're really getting angry with not angry, a little annoyed that I haven't given it to them and I, they gave me the contract many years ago. So in some ways, you're guinea pigs I'm trying things out on. So please, if you have feedback about what I say, please come and give it to me. I, I'm easily approached and I don't take... Yeah... I, I don't take offence at things. I was always a short man in a big man's world. So you, you've got to learn to just live with the kicks, don't you? Okay, an introduction to the five looks. Let's put it together. Um, you've already seen it in diagrammatic form uh, and you'll see it repeatedly as we go on. Let me give you a short overview of it. I've got, a diagram, I've got diagrams to go with it, which I think are in your booklets, are they? No, they're up here. There it is. There you go. Step one in the process is look up. It arises from the fact that the Bible is God's word. Because it's God's word, we read it with reverence and humility, ready to worship, obey, serve the God who speaks. So that's the first thing we must do. Second thing, we... We look to God in prayer and faith. We trust that as we read this book of his, he will help us interpret through his spirit and he'll speak to us through it. And he'll be at work in us to transform us, to work in us and help us believe to, and obey what we hear. Step one needs no explanation, does it? It's straightforward. Since God caused scripture to be written for us, we should ask him to be at work in us as we seek to understand what he wants to tell us. So we're going to stop right now and do exactly that. I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we might hear, read, mark, learn and inwardly digest them that being informed, strengthened, encouraged by your holy word, we might cling to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The, 
If there are people who recognise where that comes from, come and talk to me later and tell me where that prayer comes from. That's our first look. Do it whenever you sit down to read and discover the scriptures. Pray first. Go to the source of scripture, the God who caused them to be written. By the way, this look is the shortest of the lot. (laughs) So I'm just giving you warnings ahead of time. Okay? It's the most important one because it relies on the author of scripture. First look. Look down. Sorry, next one, look down. Okay? So have a look at my diagram again. This step arises out of the fact that this is the word of human beings. So not only is it the word of God given from above, it is also the word of human beings. The people who wrote this book, who wrote the book that we're reading, and the people to whom it's addressed lived in a particular context with their own language, culture, and history. So what are you doing when you're looking down? You're looking at what they wrote, at the text itself, and studying it very carefully, trying to work out what it means. It means you've got to find out as much as you can about the authors, their history, their cultural situation, the languages in which they wrote, the readers for whom they originally wrote, and all that sort of stuff. It means looking at the methods they use to convey their message. The technical term, if you want it, for this part of the task of interpreting is exegesis. E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S, exegesis. Exegesis is the drawing out from the text what it meant in its original context. Drawing out of the text what it meant in its original context. And unlike what is often done in preaching and Bible study leading, it does do that. Do you know what I see often done in preaching and Bible study reading? It's the opposite. It's called exegesis. Exegesis, drawing out from the text what's there. Exegesis, putting into the text what's not there. (laughs) Preachers do it all the time. And unlike, so unlike what is often seen in preaching and Bible study leading, exegesis draws out the meaning from the text. That's step number two. Step number three is look backward. It's about beginning to grasp What place does this passage have in the whole of the Bible? So here's me, right? Uh, Let's say uh, one of the people in the church of Corinth. And uh, I'm looking back to say, well, actually this word came to someone back then and there. Right? Now, what's it going to have to say to me here in the first century? It's travelled a long distance to get here. And then steps three and four combined arise out of the Bible being the word of God. Because God is the overseer of it, because it is his word, there'll be a unity and coherence to it. So step four is look forward. In step four, we say, all right, we recognize that this passage is part of God's great purposes in Jesus. And we ask, how does this particular passage fit into God's Christ-shaped purpose for his world. Steps three and four are about a task that is called, here it is, biblical theology. Biblical theology. Now, if you want to talk to me about biblical theology, you come and do it. That's what my doctoral thesis was all about. So, it's about how the Bible hangs together theologically. Okay? Now, step five. So again, next diagram. It's all about application or what some people like to call contextualization. 
It's written by, it's understood, indicated by the word us in the circle. Can you see that? I hope we've left it in. Yep. Okay. So, um, we ask ourselves how this passage of scripture that we're looking at impacts upon us and when we're far removed from the original authors and the original hearers. You might wonder why I put the word us in rather than me. Because I think we all think me. Okay? The reason is that most of Scripture is not written to me's. It's written to us's. Okay? That is, it's written to groups of believers getting together. Because they didn't have what we have reading inside here. They had reading that was read publicly to them and they gathered together to do it. Um, Important things to remember about my little model. First, it's pictured and explained in a quite linear way. That is, it, it appears as though if you start at one and go through to five, you can then pack up and go home, it's done. No, no. Because it's, um, it's an interactive, dynamic process. Each of the elements are constantly interacting with each other and with the text and other elements and your own personal situation to adjust your total understanding of the passage. Second, not every part of the model will apply to all passages. For example, when we're engaged in exegesis of a passage, there may be no historical or geographical elements at all. You might conveniently forget about them. Third, biblical interpretation is not simply an academic exercise. It's a spiritual exercise. So it needs the constant help and guidance of God's spirit. We'll therefore constantly be asking God to be at work as we're at it. Now, that's taken us to the end of my introduction. Now, Heather, what were we going to do? Was I going to look on the structure of the book? Yeah, so let's press on. I'm going to give you a case study just in Jonah. Okay? One more thing we need to do. Um... When you're looking at a particular passage in the Bible, the best way to start is to break the book into manageable parts. Now, you could rely on Bible dictionaries, Bible studies, commentaries, whatever, couldn't you? You can say, please tell me where the divisions are. No, no, that's not the best thing to do. The best thing is work it out for yourself. And Jonah's pretty easy, only four chapters. You should be able to do it. So let's have a go. First thing, take up the book that you've chosen, simply read it through from beginning to end. Now, if that's Ezekiel, that's going to be tough, isn't it? So I suggest you start on something a little shorter. But I think Jonah, even for slow readers, should take less than 20 minutes to read. So read it. Are you going to read it or? Yeah, come on, Heath, come and read it. Now, sit and listen, and as I read, start thinking about what the text is saying. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. So Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish 
from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea. And such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid and each cried out to their God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing, sound asleep? Get up! Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. Then we'll know who's to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heavens who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized with a great fear and they said to him, what have you done? Because the men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he told them. They said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was just getting worse and worse. And he answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that's against you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the, of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried out to, for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me, all your breakers and your billows swept over me. And I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to my neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. 
the earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and he proclaimed, In 40 days, Nineveh, will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe. He covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. And then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we don't perish. And God saw their actions, that they'd turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he threatened them with, and he did not do it. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there, sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head, to rescue him from his trouble. And Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, 
better for me to die than to live. And God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he said. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, who cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow? It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? Uh, if you um, have a look, I think, I'm not sure whether we've got this diagram, but... Um, I've done the exercise I've suggested for you. So as you read through it, um, write down your first impressions. For example, uh, have a pen in hand when you do it. Um, as, uh, and you say to yourself, uh, what things strike me about this? What sort of reactions do I have? Uh, what sort of reaction do I have to the characters in this story? Who are the heroes? Who are the villains? How do I know? What areas of life does it seem to address? What questions does it raise for me? What's its mood? Does it remind me of other parts of Scripture? Now, I've done this little exercise for myself, and I hope it's going to be on a diagram, but if not, I'll just tell you what's there. There it is. Okay, so here's, here's my slide of the first reading, okay, of your text. And I just jotted things down. So I put Jonah in the middle, and I said, uh, uh, why does God give him a second chance? Why is Jonah so rebellious? Who are the heroes in this book? Is it Jonah, the sailors, God, the Ninevites, or, or whoever? Um, what is Jonah's view of God? How, how can he talk to God, or how can he relate to God the way that he does? What, what would I do in Jonah's situation? What is the psalm doing there? What's this business about the fish? <laughs> or the how question? How is it that Jonah doesn't respond to God's call like other prophets like Moses and Jeremiah? I think that's a very good question. <laughs> He's a bit like a, an anti-type, isn't he? Okay, on the other side, is it right to talk to God the way that Jonah does? <laughs> the picture of God is striking. He's powerful, compassionate, caring to both Jews and pagans alike. Jonah has freedom in interacting with God that I'd be scared to exercise Am I wrong or is Jonah wrong? That's a good question, isn't it? These are all legitimate questions to fire at a text. Next one, did it really happen? It's not a bad question to fire at the text and ask. In overall impressions, I really like the book. It's punchy, it's down to earth. In a funny way, I like Jonah too. He's easy to identify with. Why? Okay, they're just some of the things that you fire at the text. See, and they're all good questions. And don't ever think there's a banned question. No, no, fire questions at the text. Um, so, then, uh, so read it a first time like that, and then read it a second time. And remember, no, no right or wrong answers yet. You, it's free, you are free to fire questions at the text. God's put it out there for you to interact with. That's the second time. You're just getting first impressions, sort of like jotting down your thoughts on a person you've met for the first time or your impressions of a spectacular piece of scenery you've seen for the first time. What's good about it? What don't you like about it? Then read it for a third time. 
keep your pen or pencil in hand and your fing or your fingers on the keyboard or whatever you use, jot down the principal topics, dominant ideas that are taken up, addressed or interacted with in the book. Notice when the focus changes, because that's very important. When does the focus change from one person to another? When does it change from one location to another? Uh, when does it change from one type of literature to another? Because this does it, doesn't it? You see, there's this poem right and bang in the middle and you think, well, why, what's going on there? And ask yourself, are there any little summaries anywhere that might help me get along? <laughs> or the opening and closing questions that might indicate when one section's ending and another section's beginning. Again, I've done this exercise myself. And it seemed to me that on a cursory reading, the principal topics addressed by the book are this, are these, God's character and nature. I think it's exploring who God is, okay? Jonah's attitude to non-Jews compared to God's attitude. God's love for his people. The relationship between the prophet and the word of God which he brings. That's, that's heaps, isn't it, for one four section book. Now, that's step one done. By now you should have a good feel for the book, I think. Especially if it's a short book like Jonah. Now read it again. Then make a provisional outline of the structure of the book. Aim here is to see how the author has laid out his material in communication and how each part is related to the other parts. Now, as you do this, don't forget that the original author didn't put chapter breaks verse numbers or headings in. Someone has told me that it was a monk who rode on a donkey. <laughs> and every time the donkey hiccuped or something, he put another dot in and said, that's a new chapter. Now, it's a bit of an overstatement, but sometimes they're just humans that are putting those marks in. God didn't put the marks in. Right? So don't take too much attention. Uh, so look for breaks in thought, connecting words, changes in the person who is the focus. Once you've got through the major sections, a good idea then is to give each section a title that states the content of that section. Then the next section goes a bit even further. Look for natural subdivisions following the same procedure you did with the larger sections. So can you see what you're doing? You take the big bit, you say, we're the big sections then do the big sections break into little sections and give a title to each of those subsections. That by, by the time you've done that exercise, if you do it well, you know the, the book. You're getting to know the book well. And that's a great thing to be doing. I've done this little exercise on Jonah myself and here's what I came up with first. As I read through, I thought that the chapter divisions of the Bible I was reading are basically right. First two sections, and it can be divided into four. First two sections concern Jonah and his flight from God. Isn't that fair enough? Jonah, his flight from God. Second two sections concern Nineveh and its acceptance of God's word. And both sections, interestingly, have a rescue or a deliverance. Jonah's rescued in chapter 2. And Ninevites are rescued from sin and punishment in chapter 3. That's, that's a good thing to find out, isn't it? Both have a record of Jonah's reaction. One in chapter 2 and one in chapter 3. That's good too. So here's my draft outline. Okay? 
Jonah at sea, 1, 1 to 2, 10. 1, to, 1, 1 to 17 is fleeing and fearing God. 2, 1 to 10 is Jonah rescues, God rescues Jonah. 3, 1 to 4, 11 is Jonah at Nineveh. 3, 1 to 10, God rescues Nineveh. 4, 1 to 11, disputing God's generosity. That's not rocket science to do that. All of you could do that. But what if your book's a lot longer than four chapters, like Ezekiel? What do you do then? My suggestion is to read the book paragraph by paragraph and give a short title to each. It's just a word or a phrase. Then combine the paragraphs into units, logically relating them in terms of thought, event, content or character and giving a title to each unit. Here's, here's, a, here's an exercise for those of you who are really adventurous. Find a Bible or, or get Bible software and take this book and try it out on Revelation. It's a really interesting exercise to do. See if you can work out where the division should occur in Revelation and why. Really great exercise to do and you're reading your Bible, you're learning more and it's a great part of the Bible to read. Then once you've divided up into its units, see how they fit together. Are there sort of links between them and so on? Next step, consult a commentary or a Bible dictionary. Most commentaries or Bible dictionaries give an outline of the structure of a book. Compare yours with theirs and please, please, please don't automatically assume they're right. Oh, unless they're written by me. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Uh, adjust your outline as you see fit. Now, you could have done that at the start, just gone straight to something else and saved yourself a lot of trouble. But do you know what? If you do what I've suggested, you'll have gained a feel for the book yourself. And, you know, you'll go rushing off as I do to your spouse or she does with me. Say, have you seen this before? I've never noticed this before. Look at this. It's great fun. The purpose of the whole exercise, though, is you grapple with the text yourself. So that's the end of our first session. We've given an overview of the task. We've introduced the five looks as a way of exploring the Bible that fits, I think, with God's purpose for Scripture. We've made sure that we have a good and solid view of what the Bible is. And we've had a good explorer of Jonah to prepare ourselves to understand it. We've even started to think about what Jonah is about by seeing if we can break up the sections of the book and draw an outline out of it. So that's a lot to do in just, you know, an hour or so, isn't it? So we've, we've done really well. So you've done well. You've stuck with me, most of you, I think, through the night. Um, but let me tell you, the next day, we've had, it's going to be good fun. So come back again in the morning, refresh. Don't stay up all night reading Jonah or whatever you do. <laughs> <laughs>